This is another episode of Dear Analyst, and today I'm super excited to have Matthew Brandt on the show. He's going to talk about a chart analysis he worked on while working at a fintech startup, a SaaS company, um, his experience live streaming and developing a real-time analytics solution for live streamers, and also his more recent journey into the startup world with his uh, food tech startup. And I'll let Matthew chime in and share more about all these different things he's working on. Matthew, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Al. I really appreciate that. Uh, to start off, can you give us a quick run uh, run through of your background, um, professional, take it whatever um, path you see fit? No problem. Yeah, um, I think like many other people in the data world, I have a very, very unique and unconventional way that I got into data analytics originally. Um, I'm Swiss Canadian. Uh, I spent the first 10 years of my life in Canada and the next 10 years of my life um, in Switzerland and Japan before coming back to Switzerland to study full-time uh, at the university in Lausanne, which was actually a hospitality management school. So École Hôtelière de Lausanne is a French title, or EHL as it's known uh, within the hospitality world. And a lot of people who study hospitality do not stay in hospitality. Actually, over 70% actually leave the field for a lot of reasons. And I was one of those 70% that didn't stay there. I actually went and did my mandatory Swiss military service, uh, as we do have a militia here in Switzerland. And I actually prematurely ended my military service due to an injury. And I found myself having to look for a job while living at my parents' house. And I started looking around and I didn't really find anything in the field that I wanted, which is hospitality technology. I wanted to mesh my passion for technology, which I've had since a very long time, been building computers since I'm like 14, 15, and the hospitality world, which I just studied about for four and a half years and worked in. And I couldn't find anything apart from something like systems administrator. <laughs> Which, which didn't match my expectations of what I wanted to be doing. Yeah, not a lot of hospitality I, in that world. <laughs> yeah. So I fell into a technology role at a recruitment company and I got bored very quickly. After about a year, I started looking around and I realized that the thing I enjoyed doing most, which was reporting and analysis, was an entire field in itself. I did not realize that analytics was an entire discipline. And when I realized that, I started applying for junior jobs and I was given the opportunity, which I'm still to this day extremely grateful for, to interview at an agency for a junior web analyst role. And essentially, that's how everything started. And so eight years down the line, I jumped from web analyst to being a more sort of generic type analyst at a fintech. I then worked at a media company. I then freelanced for another fintech as well. And I kind of gathered all that experience before starting the next chapter, which is which is now, which we're a good eight months into uh, our startup. Very cool. Uh, one follow-up question is, you mentioned that you realize analytics is a whole field in itself, a whole industry that you could 
really get into what were some of those signs or um i don't know thing things that you heard or saw that led you to believe in that fact one one of the big things was i started very quickly like google searching for various problems that i had so i was managing our website and i was using google analytics which back then was uh, a lot more rudimentary than it was today and things were fairly complicated to set up and there were quite a lot of online posts about that topic and i realized from all of these people answering that they had this experience from somewhere and so logically they they were involved in the and like you know there would be like job titles from those people in the forum somewhere of like a senior web analyst or something like that and i i said to myself okay so these people are analysts but they're not analysts in a bi context as i thought they're analysts of like web data which is the stuff that i was collecting at the time mm -hmm. and that's what kind of turned that was one of the things that turned me on to um the fact that this whole field exists and i think it, it was definitely well hidden because I immediately jumped to sort of the educational path and was like, oh, so surely there must be some kind of university programs or, or formal training programs for that. And this was what, 2013 or so, 2014. And I looked here in Switzerland and I could not find a single course or program officially saying at the end of this thing, you'll become a web analyst. So I was like, hmm, okay. So there was very contradictory information at the time for me. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, and then just to piggyback off of that, like what did you end up doing to increase your knowledge of analytics and building those skills in this field? So at the time, I definitely did a lot of reading um, about the problems I was having, about the, the things I was doing for the business that I was working for at the time, which was around yeah, setting up the website, getting tracking set up and things like that. And I did a lot of reading, but I also discovered that I just had to do things. I really just had to try things out. So I started trying to build my own website at the time. I definitely didn't have the knowledge of how to do that. So I tried to learn how to do that. Not very successfully, I might add. Um, didn't, didn't, wasn't able to go on like the path to code uh, that people are able to today. That's for sure. This is like a 10 year difference almost. Um, but yeah, I, I figured out that I have to practically actually try things. And that, that is where I all also coincidentally discovered my learning style, which I think is really important for people to know what their learning style is. Some people are very visual learners. Some people are really reading type learners. And me, it's practical. I need to actually do things to have them properly ingrained in my right. brain for a long time. And when you when you say building your website, was this kind of like using an existing framework like WordPress or even Joomla or... What kind of platform were you building on? Uh, so I actually just, I actually just started straight up coding something. Um, oh, okay. Just pure, pure HTML, CSS, uh, and JavaScript at the time. Um, I, I wasn't planning on hosting it anywhere. I didn't really understand the dynamics of hosting or domain names yet at that time. Um, funnily enough, when I did start at the agency a few months later, I already had that like boilerplate knowledge of having constructed a website. And that was something that my mentor actually um, showed me. He says, oh, in order to test out like tracking stuff, you can actually set up something locally then you don't have to pay any costs of running it anywhere and you don't have to worry about like server side problems and configuration you can just have right. it run on your laptop and that was really that was really convenient definitely right yeah you're kind of like in charge of the whole infrastructure the hosting and you can play thing play with things and trial and error 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess well, let's take this back um, into the world of analytics. And I wanted to ask you more about your experience working at a fintech SaaS company. Um, can you tell, tell us more about what this company did and also um, what this churn analysis was that you worked on? Absolutely. So very simple. Um, the company provides accounting and business software to small companies. So there are many, many small companies in Switzerland. We're talking about SMEs here make up a good, probably 80, 85% of uh, pick your relevant metric, not something like GDP, but there are just a, a really sizable amount of small and medium enterprises here. And mm -hmm. for them, administration is a huge pain, especially accounting. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Swiss tax law, but it is at least as complicated as every other country's tax law, if not more. <laughs> yes. Um, and so it is It is very strenuous for businesses here to operate. Um, and so they ba basically made a piece of software that allows people to manage that a bit easier. Um, cool. When I started, I started out, actually I was hired as a marketing analyst officially, um, but that was kind of, I would say, we kind of dug the grave on that after two months when we realized that they they are in a lot more trouble than they let on in the interview. Um, mm. Me being, for example, the only data person in the entire organization of 30, 40 people at the time, no one else was managing data at all. There, of course, there were developers and there were DevOps people and things like that, but there was no one actually in charge of data flows and things like that as we understand them today. So my role was actually... Basically, at the beginning, I was cleaning up a lot. I was figuring out what there was. I was doing a lot of auditing. I was figuring out what the business flows are. I was trying to understand business entities. I was trying to understand the relationships between them because it's a fairly complicated ecosystem. It wasn't just a case of they have clients. It was those customers are businesses. They have users. Those users are connected to sometimes multiple different businesses. Mm -hmm. There's email addresses that are unique. Some are not unique. Then there's also fiduciaries, which are basically professional accountants that can be additionally connected to business accounts. And so the entire ecosystem was fairly complex. So I spent a lot of time just figuring it out. Um, and so I guess sometime within my second year, second to third year I was at the business, we uh, there was a project that was kicked off to introduce Salesforce as a CRM. And it was the opportunity for us to professionalize a lot of things, uh, introduce some reverse ETL where we would start pushing records into Salesforce from, from a database. And so we started setting all that up. And soon after, the immediate question came, once that was all rolled out, the immediate question was, okay, what else can we do with this powerhouse of, of a data warehouse that we have that has so much information in it rolled up and so cleanly, you know, available. And of course, one of the answers was, well, machine learning, right? We can do a lot of things. And what's the biggest problem for the business? Churn. Most SaaS businesses struggle with churn. So the decision was made to embark on an initial sort of proof of concept to see what the potential is. Like, are there any things that we can find that would lead us down a path of saying, okay, we could change X, Y, Z and hopefully reduce churn down the line. And that was basically what the project was about. Got it. And so, so this was a result of 
this ETL project with Salesforce that kind of started this whole uh, line of thinking of like, how can we reduce churn? Or was there an existing project kind of around this? Because I, I think reducing churn is obviously a very important uh, analysis for any company. Um, but it's not, it sounded like this was uh, born by this ETL process. Is that right? So I would say that the project was not born out of it in the sense that okay. the idea of reducing churn already existed well before that. However, the technical foundation was not there to do that kind of work. It would only it. became possible through the work that we did with old ETL because we created a data warehouse, we created a clean set of tables and schemas where we had all the information about users, companies, all the different business entities rolled up, all the finances, everything available, um, which was absolutely beautiful to look at after all the work that we put in, <laughs> I have to say. Um, but you know, you get tired of just, you know, showing people, oh yeah, we can do select star on this table and you have all the information at your fingertips. There's definitely more potential there. And that's where basically the idea came from is like, okay, we can do deep analysis, but it would be nice to have, uh, yeah, can we determine with machine learning things that we can't just find on our own through basically poking through the data warehouse? Yeah. Cool. And then when, um, did, what was the kind of the final impact result of setting everything up? Um, were we able to reduce churn by a certain amount or did people just have better insight into what the churn was? I'm curious how that impacted the rest of the organization. So there were two major outcomes. Um, I can't name a specific metric to the how much churn was reduced purely because mm -hmm. I wasn't there long enough to actually observe the, the long-term change. Um, so I wouldn't want to name a number for that, but there definitely was a reduction in churn as a result of the machine learning, which, which, which basically the model spit out several outcomes um, or several different um, interpretations that we saw and then were able to use to optimize. Um, and that was one of the other things that the outcome was we were able to effectively change parts of the business uh, the operational processes based on what the analysis put out. One of those things was identifying customers that were going to churn. Um, purely based on the kind of business habits and, and one of the features that we engineered as part of the machine learning model, it became apparent that customers who didn't log in for a very long time were going to churn after they had been active for some time. And so it's effectively there was a team that was set up as part of customer support or customer success, um, that were engaged in calling customers that had previously been active and had fallen off and that had a direct impact on churn even before it happened because those customers, their concerns were heard, their wishes were heard more. Uh, some of them were offered discounts because pricing was an issue, but often it was around the product. It was around, uh, you know, other topics, right? And so that was, that was something that directly led to churn not even happening in the first place, which I suppose is like the, the golden, the golden egg or the, the holy grail is to stop the churn before it even happens. Right. Yeah, I think I, mean, I don't know why I think about this, but uh, I thought about this. But when I think about you know when you have a simple example of a credit card and there's like an annual fee and the the year goes by and you're ready to pay for the annual fee, and the minute you try to cancel the card, you know the credit card company, at least in the United States, they'll throw you all kinds of retention offers to 
keep you as a customer. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how you pointed that out and that worked with really well with, with the company you're working at. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously customers who had already engaged in the cancellation process, cause it could take some time for them. Um, some of them were on yearly plans and then they canceled and they still had two or three months, uh, to sit out on their subscription. And of course, during those two to three months, they would get, you know, email offers of a oh, hundred francs off or things like that. But at that point, someone's already taken a, a, a decision, right? They've taken a psychological decision to leave. Um, and so it's interesting from a, from a behavioral perspective to get them before they take that decision in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, moving on to another one of your, I guess, passions, interests is uh, Twitch live streaming. Um, can you tell us more about how you became one of the, I guess, the top 3% of Twitch streamers, what you stream about, and then um, what kind of analytics you're thinking about incorporating into your uh, live streaming, uh, I guess, passion or side hustle? Yeah, the top three percent figure is is great. Um, it's the it's the equivalent of writing X Fang uh, or you know X Microsoft in your LinkedIn bio because essentially if you have any kind of sizable following on Twitch, even even just you know ten twelve viewers at a time, you're already within something like the point zero zero one percent of all streamers who even have an audience in the first place um <laughs> purely purely because there's just so many streamers who go live once and never again or they only stream every three months or uh plenty of people just stream to basically zero or or one viewer um so how right. i got into twitch is is a weird a weird and wacky story is basically during the pandemic i think a lot of us were extremely frustrated at times with a lot of things and i immediately started looking for different sources of entertainment where I had a chance to, let's say, massage my brain a little bit more than just pure Netflixing on the couch. And I went on Twitch because I'd somehow heard about, I, I can't even really place where the thought came from, but I had effectively heard that it wasn't only for gaming. And that there was other things on there. And I thought, oh, that, that could be interesting. So I started watching different streams. I started watching music. I started, uh, I did watch a few game streams, but it wasn't really my primary interest. And I discovered these other categories at the time called science and technology. And I, I went into that category and there was everything. There was people doing robotics, the electronics, soldering, um, people building stuff. But then there were also people effectively just sharing their screen and coding. And I thought that was odd at first. I really thought it was odd. I didn't realize that that was a thing, like long format code sharing, um, essentially because coding is a long process. Like there isn't, it's not like a 30 minute thing. You just whack something together and then it's done or like a picture or something, but it, you need a significant amount of investment. But I, I was tuning into one of these streams and there were hundreds of people there watching chatting and as i watched that stream a couple times more i started to engage with the community a little bit and i realized that it's it's a it's a big thing and a lot of people watching are developers obviously but a lot of them are not developers a lot of them are people who want to get into coding but don't know how or they have a lot of questions and they're not sure how to approach the entire topic and just and that got you me thinking 
Yeah. You, yeah. Just to back Go up ahead. a little bit, was there a specific language you're looking at or just all different kinds of no. coding? No. Yeah. The, the, the filtering wasn't sufficient enough to, to, to break it down by language. Um, Twitch's okay. discovery has gotten a little bit better since, but it's still relatively um, inferior to, to, uh, to searching like on YouTube or something like that. So it, it is sort of just, you have, have to kind of find them by knowing that they're there still, um, which is part of problems of, of Twitch as a platform. But so what happened? was that immediately triggered something in me because for a very long time i've been very bullish about education and analytics uh, and any, anyone who knows me within the last i don't know five six years if you ask them about me that will probably come up at some point it's like oh maddie's really passionate about like education because it was so difficult for me to find the information at the time that I wanted to get into it. I want to make it easier for other people. So that's why things like analytics camp here, like doing these events where we um, bring people together at an unconference format and anyone can speak and anyone can talk. And it's meant to be learning. It's about learning and educating yourself, but also edu educating others. And so it triggered in me a thing was like, what about using Twitch as a platform to teach people about data analytics? surely it could be a thing and there was no other way to answer it other than trying it so that is how i started was basically saying to myself there's a, a lot of things i would love to try out i would love to do some data analysis work i would love to play with new tools i would love to do all these things and why not show the world what i'm doing at the same time so that's how i got started and very quickly i realized that most of the time, no one's watching, but you have to behave as if people are there. Because if you don't talk and someone does tune into your stream, all they see is someone sitting there in silence and it's not very interesting. So mm -hmm. I quickly discovered that this has to be more, let's call it edutainment. So not purely entertainment and not purely ed education, but somewhere in between. And I started uh, meeting people from different communities on Twitch, technical communities. Um, and I eventually was invited to join a Twitch team, which is basically a, uh, a collection of streamers who have the same goals and, and mindset. Uh, the team is called The Claw. It's also a, a large community of, of developers and alike who are all, not all streamers, but there's a lot of streamers as part of the community. And it's a great place to basically just learn. And I, at some point, so talking about real-time analytics, there's never been a use case for me to try real-time analytics. With it, when any business I've talked to in any business context I've been working for, it's never been a thing because the, taking decisions in real-time has never been relevant to the business. I've not worked in the airline industry. I've not worked, not worked in any really time-sensitive industries where real-time could even be applied. So when I thought about Twitch and I thought about real-time, I actually thought, oh, this is actually the first time in my professional career that I could do something in real time and have it actually be applicable. And so I saw basically a, a niche that there could be a fit for. And I started talking to people. I started sort of doing the startup thing, right? Uh, getting user feedback and seeing if people actually care about this. And people did. So a lot of streamers did say that they, when they stream, they don't understand what's happening analytically with their stream. They, all they see is a view count and that's it. They don't have any other information. And so I started 
thinking about what kind of features and I started building something. And that's how that project got started. Uh, just in numbers, I called it, which is a throwback to Twitch's original name before it was acquired by Amazon, Justin TV. Uh, in honor of the, the creator who called it basically <laughs> Justin TV, uh, as it was originally just him streaming uh, himself, essentially. Um, and so it's that is where the project uh, went. Uh, we're basically now at first feature is kind of wrapped up, and I'm looking to put uh, the front end back end together and then release it to the pre-wait list that I have, which is probably about 70, 80 people who've signed up who are curious to get an invite to try it out and see what it's like. Very cool. I'll definitely try to link to it in the show notes so other people can join this pre-wait list or uh, wait list that you have. Um, when you were streaming, I guess, what? how did you decide what uh, tools to use, uh, what content to produce? Because it sounds like it's a pretty, it takes a lot of planning to figure out like, you know, for an hour or two hours or whatever, thinking about the whole thing that you're going to do on screen and in real time. Um, how did you decide what to show and planning the content? It's a really great question. Um, I initially approached streaming much like I would do approach a recording. I figured out like a content plan for the stream. I would spend several hours researching a topic that I was passionate about. One of them, for example, was um, how Uber fares in New York changed because I found a really cool data set and I wanted to explore it a lot more. So I figured out where I can put the data. I can figure it out, um, okay, I'm going to have Postgres running locally in a Docker container. Uh, okay, what ID am I going to use? How am I going to visualize? Like I would plan out everything and then I would go and do the stream. So either the next day or the day after. And so I would have a specific goal in mind and then I would have all the steps to that goal more or less planned out for me. And I would take notes meticulously at the beginning. I would tell people, this is what I'm going to be doing for today. These are the steps to get there, etc. And for the beginning, when I didn't have a lot of viewers, that worked quite well. I was basically able to stick to the plan. Um, there was some chatter going on in the stream, but it was mostly fairly quiet. And I was able to get the stuff done that I wanted. The problem is, <laughs> I guess, as a result of that, people became more interested. And so as the stream grew to 30, 40 viewers sometimes, or even peak, I've had 100 something viewers in there, I get derailed. And it is effectively chat's job to derail me because that is what is entertaining about it too. There's a lot of things and mechanisms that Twitch has um, to, to allow the streamer to make things fun. And so I abandoned half of that strategy now. I basically have a goal for each stream where I tell people, this is the goal for the stream. And basically, <laughs> half of chat is kind of supportive in that, in, the, in that they will try and guide me toward that. And half of chat is going to try and derail me with everything possible. And that's what makes it entertaining, I think. Right. Are, I guess for the people who are trying to derail you, are they just posting random things unrelated to what you're working on or what you're building? Or are they genuinely interested in what you're working on, but have like a ton of questions or what have you. So a bit of a mixture. Um, there's very few trolls, which I quite like, actually. I don't know why that is particularly in my stream, but I have very, very, very rarely had someone who who actually wants to derail for the purpose of causing like chaos, right? right. Um, so 
most people who derail are because they're interested and just don't understand what's happening. There's not enough context for them. I mean, if you jump into my 18th stream building just in numbers, then you've also not experienced 17 other streams, which at three hours of stream is, you know, 50 hours of material that you're missing out on. Um, so I totally understand that as well. So in the sense of derailment, it's purely just them asking questions. There is a small percentage of my community who are derailing for the purposes of entertainment, and they know that they are derailing for the purposes of entertainment, and they only mean it in a good way. So they will mm -hmm. um, use commands to trigger memes on stream, or they'll they'll use the uh, what are called channel points. So as you watch, you accumulate points, and you can use those points on different actions and th that the streamer chooses. And I have a lot of actions that do funny things to the stream, like disconnect the entire stream for 30 seconds. Um, and so people will use those channel points uh, to claim certain things to disrupt the flow of things. But those same people are also very helpful when it does get to a point where I am actually stuck on something, those people will also help um, solve a problem. So it is effectively like a very large peer coding community uh, in essence, which is why I'm also able to do things on stream that I'm not able to do on my own, that I wouldn't make headway on. That's super cool. Yeah, I, I never thought I'd see or hear of people that work at data analytics, data analytics do Twitch live streaming, but I'll definitely have to start following your, uh, your, your channel or what have you. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I'd love for you to come by. It's, it's a riot, really. It's quite a lot of fun. Yeah, and I promise I won't derail the conversation or the, whatever you're working on. <laughs> Um, well, I, I think uh, taking a little bit of a left turn here, um, you decided to, in addition to all the different projects and things you're working on, you're now working on a startup. And I wanted to hear from you why you decided to get into the food tech space, what you're trying to do that's different from everyone else, and uh, how things are going. The journey um, actually started before any of these other things. Um, about nine years ago, almost now, uh, mm -hmm. I met my now co-founder, Ella, uh, for lunch. We met over a, a sort of social app to, to get to know people. I was new in Zurich at the time. I had just started at this agency, um, and I had previously lived in Basel and had moved to Zurich, and I basically didn't know anybody. And we met, and she told me about her idea that she had with a friend of hers from work. And the idea was to make it easier for people to eat lunch together. And I sort of said, oh, well, I, I don't really get it. Like people can just eat lunch together now. Like I don't see the, I don't see the problem. She says, oh no, the food isn't from, from restaurants. It's people's own home cooked food. And something in me just sort of exploded because the idea was so simple, but at the same time it had so many questions attached to it. And it, it spoke to a lot of things that I experienced or a lot of things that I cared about. It spoke to my hospitality background and I, we started talking more about it. And over the years, it mutated in, in different shapes and forms. Uh, initially, it was a fairly part-time, low investment thing where we would just meet once a week and talk over things. And Eventually, it mutated into four years ago, us both putting money down to build our platform so that we could prove that people want this. Um, we built an MVP and went to market and not a lot happened. 
uh, as, as it does if you don't have any marketing <laughs> and you're not working on the project full time. And those are the things that we learned, uh, bootstrapping on the side. And last year, um, the timing, yes, it was a pandemic, but we, for various reasons, the timing for both of us was right to step back from both of our careers and, and go full-time into the startup. So we started seeking investment and we found uh, four wonderful angel investors. And I really can't stress that enough. They are extremely supportive. Um, really the, like the best angels you could imagine to have um, in, the first, in your first investment round. And we raised enough to, to keep us going for a while, for eight to nine months to go full-time and, and leave our jobs behind and have that sort of financial security there that we wouldn't, you know, lose our apartments and have to eat cereal every day. <laughs> and so that's basically, uh, it was a nine year process to get to there. Um, but we, yeah, then finally last year in November founded, uh, the founded the company officially. And as of January this year, we started both full time. Exactly. That's great. And are you able to use any of your analytical skills in the startup? Because startup uh, skills are very different from just general analytic skills, obviously. Um, but do you still get to use any of that analytical skills that you've gained over the years? Uh, what a great question. See, I don't feel like I'm using them enough because obviously I'm not spending all of my time doing analytics things. I'm spending my time doing 50 different things because that's what founders do. Um, so I feel I'm not using them enough, which is why I continue to spend a lot of time going to events or live streaming on Twitch is also one of the ways that I keep myself in the loop in terms of data analytics things. Um, but ultimately, yes, I mean, this, the analytical skills have definitely helped me understand, okay, uh, things like correlation causation, just because we spoke to a hundred people are they representative, you know, is, are those hundred people really representative of our entire market? Or did we just get lucky in that one place that there were a lot of people grouped together who were like-minded? And I think that helps. And, um, maybe just to circle back. So cookie is about making home cooked food accessible to everyone by having a online marketplace that anyone is open to use. So people can buy and sell home cooked meals from their homes either they can eat the ta at the table together with others if they so choose or they can set it as takeaway where people would just come by with a container and pick it up we even have delivery with a bicycle career in um, a few postcodes here in zurich that we're testing out and so essentially i think one of the things that makes us a bit different is you know food sharing at scale doesn't exist yet this is just reality. There are a few concepts and, and startups around the world trying it in various forms. I think what the USP that we have is we are not asking people to take up an activity that they're not already doing. We are trying to build on the existing network of people already cooking at home and asking them to plan a little bit more and make a little bit more. This is not a, a case of an Uber asking people to go out and lease a car that they didn't have before to be able to drive for Uber. It's very different than that. And it's about using, using the networks that we already have. Peer-to-peer -peer is, of course, efficient. And it's about ultimately making an impact. We are an impact startup. Um, every meal that is eaten together allows kitchens to stay cold. 
which means that there's less energy, less food waste, less water usage, which is necessary for our future. Hmm, very interesting. I, I suppose, let's assume that this, your idea totally um, scales, becomes this huge thing. Would you ever get pushback from, I don't know, like a restaurant association who are like, why are people sharing their meals instead of coming into our restaurants and eating in or getting takeout? Uh, I can imagine that could be a pretty vocal group of people. I 100%. And we've had a lot of conversations with um, restaurant and other um, gastronomical outlet owners for exactly that reason. And we, in most cases, they quickly understood that we're not competitors. The home cooking food market is not a competitor to the restaurant market because the home cooked market requires planning. The six, it's 6 p.m. I want to eat something isn't the person who then decides to go shopping and invest the one and a half hours that it takes to prepare a meal. That's the person who orders takeout or goes to a restaurant nearby. The person who home cooks has already thought 12 to 16 hours beforehand that they're going to make something to eat because they needed to go shopping for it. And so they are two different types of customer, or it's the same customer in a different state, depending on what day of the week it is and what their schedule is like. So we are not competitors with them. Um, and ultimately eating at a restaurant is an experience about the restaurant experience and being served and eating at a cook's home or eating home cooked meals from your neighbors is an entirely different experience. So they don't overlap. There isn't like, oh, I want to have an experience. I could choose whether it's eating from my neighbor or going to this amazing restaurant that they don't, that's not the decision criteria for people. Got it. That makes sense. Very interesting. Um, I guess uh, as we kind of wrap things up here, um, is there any kind of call to action or uh, behavior you'd like people to take that for those who are listening that are interested in the your, your idea, your startup, and maybe you want to contribute to the community? Anything like you you'd like to call out? Um, well, two things. Uh, if you're listening and you're based in Switzerland, we'd absolutely love to have you on our platform. It is currently Switzerland only at the moment for a lot of different reasons, um, not only regulatory, but just us. We can't manage things outside the country. We visit every new cook manually um, to verify them personally. So um, verifying cooks in you know Indonesia or Japan at the moment is a little bit out of our scope. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, and for everyone else, um, if you're based in Switzerland or not, I'd love you to stop by on the Twitch stream or, of course, get in touch. If you want to discuss something, I'm really open to that. Um, I have a very unique website domain. Uh, this is actually born out of um, my my handle, which is Maddie Two Shoes, on stream uh, a few months back or last year. At one point, someone in chat said I should just buy the .shoes top level domain because, well, it would just make sense because I had maddytwoshoes.com, but it's not very professional to call yourself Maddie Two Shoes, but not have the shoes domain. So I actually bought it live <laughs> while, while on stream. Uh, so my domain is maddie2.shoes. Um, and I've never met another person yet who has a .shoes domain. So <laughs> that's really funny. Maddie.maddie2.shoes. I'll definitely include that in the notes. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, Maddie, I, I wanted to thank you so much for sharing your experience in the analytics world, in the food tech space and everything in between. Um, hopefully everything works out with the, uh, the startup. I know how that's, I've done my own startup myself. So I understand the trials and tribulations that come with that. Um, so best of luck on that. And we'll hopefully see you on a, see you in a, a stream sometime soon. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed, uh, yeah, answering your questions, which have been really, really interesting questions as well. Mm -hmm.